Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18. We're actually in that section where it's talking about the purity laws. And we, we're, this is six weeks in, so if you're just joining us, we're six weeks in to exploring and unpacking this book to try to have a, get a better grip on what God is doing and saying in the book of Leviticus. And, and it's a book that is distant from a lot of people from understanding and uh, just because it, it's sometimes pretty dense and thick and confusing and some of the laws and, and regulations within are pretty harsh. And so we wanted to unpack that and jump right into that during our summer series. Uh, before we get into it though, we need to understand um, that, that we're talking today about morality. And, and I, let me just look around real quick here. For the most, yeah, for the most part, you guys are pretty moral. Like I know most of you and you look pretty yeah. Okay, but overall, like, like moral. And you probably would say that you're, you are. I'm a pretty moral person because we know people who aren't, right? I mean, people, there's people we know who are pretty messed up. Am I right? And so, but the question is, where, where would we get that, that, that construct from, the concept of morality or right or wrong? I mean, outside of the scriptures, I mean, we probably would say that we, we derive that from the cultural perspective at the time. You know, what culture you're in is going to dictate to you what's right, what's wrong, what's totally taboo, what's totally permissible, the laws of the land, what's legal. The problem is, is that in this time frame, the book of Leviticus is written to a people who are now just exiting their previous culture and previous law. They've got a law under the Pharaoh. They have a law within Egypt. They have a culture that says this is what's right and wrong. They're exiting that. And now they're about to go into an onslaught, like a march to the promised land where it's going to be their land, new law with God as king and uh, their own people group. But they're not going to be the only ones there. And so the, the, the reality is that Leviticus is written in that time frame to say, you are going to be a nation, you are going to be a people, and if you're going to be that, you have to know my way, radically different from where you came from and radically different from where you're going. And so when you look in uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament, there are, there's um, laws that, that are add up to 613. And, and some people, uh, this is kind of just... Sometimes it's an arbitrary way of splitting it apart, but it's, it's helpful to kind of understand some of the differences that the 613 laws comprise. The judicial law, like, like what, what, what penalties result in capital punishment, or what are you supposed to do if, if someone is caught in adultery or whatever. Ceremonial law, um, how do I, this is what we talked about last week, how do I know that I'm clean enough to come before God and worship? And moral law, just the basic interactions as far as humanity between each other. Now, even though that there's 600, how many laws are there again? 613. There's 613 laws. All of those have the, the, the dual purpose of this. Conditioning God's people for the most long-term satisfaction, first off. And secondly, conditioning God's people for a healthy distinction in the unhealthy world they're about to occupy. John Piper, uh, this is at the bottom of your notes, God said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. We are most satisfied when our satisfaction is in him. And so, so the reality is, is that if you want to be someone who's a pleasure seeker, you want to get as much satisfaction as you can, this is kind of what Piper built a lot of his philosophy on, you're going to pursue that in God. And so God's saying that where you came from has a total new definition or a total definition on what is, is permissible and not pleasure-wise and everything else. I'm different. Where you're going in Canaan, radically different definition on all that as well. You are going to be people who are going to find your ultimate satisfaction, not just in temporary happiness or what feels right from the gut. 
You're going to actually find your ultimate happiness and satisfaction in living out and fleshing out a distinct life that I've crafted you for. Again, God is conditioning his people to live in a, a distinct life in an unhealthy environment that they're about to occupy. God wasn't going to do this. He wasn't going to take them right where they were and say, okay, you're unhealthy, but I'm going to take you unhealthy people and I'm going to put you in an incredibly unhealthy place and expect that you're going to thrive. That'd be setting themselves up for, that'd be setting them for, up for failure. What God does is this. He says, I'm going to condition you. I'm training you with a perspective that is radically different. And it's going to be radically different from all the people around you, but I'm doing that so that when you get here, you have a perspective on what health is and what holiness is and who I am so that when you get here, you'll know the distinction between the way that you're living and the way that other people are living all around you. And so when we get into this section, uh, some of the, the key hallmarks of 18 and 19 are, are the following as far as the moral law is concerned. First off, um, chapter 18 is it's kind of like um, a chapter all about sex, but it's nowhere near as fun to read as Song of Solomon because it's like it's basically the rule book on human sexuality from God's perspective to this people at this time. And, and it's important for us to, as we're going through that, to understand the, the fact that God is again saying He's identifying things that are culturally legal and permissible at the time and saying, this is going to be distinct in you. You have in chapter 18, um, the reality that God is addressing in a hypersexualized culture where kids would grow up and not have the confidence to know that their uncle wasn't going to take some type of predatory move upon them. Kids in this culture grew up in an environment where family members swapped who was doing what with whom all the time. And so you're growing up in a radically unsafe environment where predatory sexual activity is happening all over the place. And so you get right from the get-go that, that human sexuality defined by God is something that is not permissible between like siblings or a parent and a child or, or um, uh, an aunt and, and a nephew. The, these things were not, that was off the table that for you and, and to which the people at the time might say, but I get what you're saying, but that's like everyone does that. No one has rules on it. God's like, I know, I know. That, that's how they roll. I'm actually calling you to walk differently, and that's going to be a different a distinction that you're going to live out. In verse 19 in chapter 18, human sexuality was not created to be um, inconsiderate or imposing. You have, you have God through Moses actually saying that husbands can't like proposition their wife for, for a sexual relationship when she's on her menstrual cycle out of respect for her. It, it's something where, where God is protecting the wife and, and making things considerate so it's not just, look, I've got needs. But actually, no, there, you, that may be how everyone else operates, but not my people. In verse 20, um, human sexuality was intended to be shared between a husband and wife exclusively. That this, this, this was not just something that was a, you know, this is a, just a human thing. If we look in the animal kingdom, there are no bounds or barriers. So why are we inventing this artificial bound and barrier of marriage as being the only place that, that human sexuality should be and flourish? And God's saying, I totally get that you're looking around at every other culture or any other animal movement. You're not animals. You're my people. You're not the Canaanites. You're my people. You're not the Egyptians. You're my people. And there's going to be a radical distinction. Verse 21 um, gets into the fact that human sexuality was to, be, to be, be between two different 
genders, that, that it was going to be a, a male with a female. And, and the reason for that was that there's this anatomical servitude that's happening, that this, this decision that I'm going to serve this person who has a different anatomy than me, that this was actually not just between a husband and wife, but between a husband and wife who could anatomically actually meet each other's needs quite literally. And that that would be on a mental scale, but also a physiological scale that that was going to be a distinction. Again, at the time, they're like, but that, that's like, who says that? And God says, look, I'm talking to you about my people. Other people aren't going to be operating in this, but this is my people. He gets into 21, and, and, or uh, verse 22, and says that human sexuality was not intended to be shared with animals. And, and to be honest, I've not talked to one single person in the past year who's had an issue with that verse. But it, at the time, it was a thing. I mean, and you have to realize that all of these things in here, this isn't just like God saying, okay, I'm just going to arbitrarily throw these out. And people are like, this doesn't even apply to us. God is actually identifying things that they were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis that other people said, look, it's legal. And, and uh, 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 this is totally like my family has done this for ages. And God says, I get that. But you are my people. And you are going to, I, I'm, I'm setting you up for the most satisfaction, and the most satisfaction is going to be found in following my lead. Number one, number two, you're going to be distinct. You are going to be different from those around you. You get to the end of, uh, end of 18, and he even talks through something that, again, we don't struggle with today, but was a thing for them, which is child sacrifice. And with the same urgency that he's talking about human sexuality, he's saying, and as far as your kids, these aren't people that you can sacrifice. I know that everyone else does that. I know that that's a common practice, but it is not a common practice for my people. And you get to the end of 18, and in verse 29, it reads this. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such a person must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord your God. When he gets into 19, you get into this uh, massive, like, just, I mean, it's, it's almost schizo, I mean, where 18 was kind of, like, um, thematic, okay, human sexuality, child sacrifice. The chapter 19, it's just like, it's almost like just a stream of thought. I mean, it's covering a ton of stuff in an ADD fashion where it's like jumping from one subject to the next. And, it's, and a lot of these things we see and we're like, okay, these are things that we see the reality or the need for today. Uh, if you look at verse 19, uh, or chapter 19, verse 3, each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbath. I'm the Lord your God. Verse 9, he's talking about the poor and how we treat them when he says this in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings from your harvest. What he's saying is this. Everybody wants to make a profit. We want to have, we want to have a good paycheck. We want to have a good, everyone wants that. He says, but you, you're my people. And that means that you're not just trying to get all the profit. What you're trying to do is this. You're going to harvest your field, but you're going to leave the perimeter, and you're not going to take the food from that. Why? Because there's people in need around you. Your whole point in life is not just to get profit. Part of your life is not only to provide for your family, but also to be sensitive to the needs of others. There's going to be people who are homeless or fieldless who need food, and they're going to get a chance to go to the perimeter of your field. To which all of your neighbors are going to say, what in the world are you doing? Do you know how much you're like wasting? You know how much income you could have been banking from that? I know, but this is God. And this is the way that he's called me to live. 
You continue going through. You see um, in verse 14, or verse, uh, verse 13, talking about a work environment. Don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Verse 14, we see that God has an opinion on taking care of those with special needs. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear the Lord, but fear your God. I am the Lord. One of the greatest verses that I don't see a whole lot of people talking about in, in this whole section is verse 15. Because every culture does something funky with, um, with, with regard to the rich and the poor. Either the rich are the, the, man, these are the people we hold up in esteem and the poor are just lazy and, and terrible and, and shiftless and they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Or, or the poor are the people, man, they're the only people that matter. And the people who are evil, the rich. Look what verse 15 says. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the rich, but judge your neighbor fairly. All of a sudden we see spewing into the way that God is calling these people to live this idea of equality. And we jump down to verse 33, talking about how we treat outsiders and people who are different ethnically and culturally or nationally than us. Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 35, don't use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights and an honest ephah and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, so at the end of each one of these commandments, what is God doing? He's like, oh, and, and by the way, this isn't Moses talking. Who's talking? I am the Lord your God. And just in case they needed further, like just convincing that this was an important thing, he says, the one who did something pretty important for you, I liberated you. I freed you from Egypt. And the thing, this is not what I did. I didn't bring you out of slavery in Egypt to say, all right, go and do whatever you'd like. Run free, my children, go. I actually liberated you for life so that you could actually live the way you were always intended to live. And now you're, you're going to have a country to do it in. And you're going to have a government to do it in. My government. And I'm going to lead you. And that is what we see happening in 18 and 19. And throughout the law. And then we get this to verse 37. Keep all my decrees. Wait, how many decrees? How many decrees were there? 613. Keep all my decrees and all of my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. Okay, so here's the deal. If there's 613 laws, how do you remember them? Because seriously, when I'm driving, I forget traffic laws. <laughs> forget traffic laws, okay? Right? How am I supposed to remember 600 and... If I'm supposed to obey all 613, how am I supposed to do that? Well, one of the, reason, one of the ways that God enabled them to do this was a cultural norm at the time. And it has, that, that has a lot to do with like Hittite war treaties. Um, when, when the Hittites made a, a treaty specifically with Egypt, um, or one of the most poignant ones was, was with Egypt, they have all of the major like specifications of the law between them and Egypt, spelling everything out, the fine print of the contract. But, but um, eventually what we have is a situation where no one could remember all that. And so what they did was they compartmentalized the whole of it into a bite-sized chunk, a general summary of the treaty or policy, uh, kind of like a summarized version of this long, drawn-out, major law-filled reality. When we see all of the 613 laws that, that are, take place in the Old Testament, the civil, the ceremonial, the moral, 
all 613 laws. That's a lot. But what God did was similar to what the Hittites were doing was he took that general policy and he summarized them. He summarized the 613 in the 10. The 10 commandments are a summarized version of all, all 613. There are four, the first four of the 10 commandments can basically be describing our relationship with God and the last six basically describe our love for others, how we have a relationship with everyone else. All of these rando like things that are in, in the law actually have something to do with him. And, and actually have something to do with, with one of these Ten Commandments. But let's look at 19 at some of the odd, more, more like interesting ones. Verse 19 in, in chapter 19, the last part of it, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Okay, so apparently God has an issue with 50-50 cotton blend, right? Why? Where does that fit? What's the first commandment? We see, we see in the first commandment this idea of that God is one, that we are only to worship him, that he's set apart. And so what is God doing with, with his people? We see some of these seemingly arbitrary laws calling out a distinction. In a world that's going to be pluralized, my people are going to be singular in focus. We're not like I'm taking a little bit of this God and a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this. You're actually going to be unified. And so you're going to be a walking billboard of that, even down to your clothing. And so for this particular people, that was a calling. Um, we have things like uh, verse 27, don't cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. What's the explanation there? There isn't one. God is again talking through this distinction. You are a people that are united. Verse 28 um, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Well, growing up as a Baptist kid, that was clear. I mean, people with tattoos are of the devil. Duh. <laughs> and I know that we all believe that here. <laughs> Some of you have tattoos of the devil. So, but the truth is that, that and I know, um, when we're looking at these, when we're looking at all of these laws, the one thing that we have to, before we get to seeing what is applicable today, because again, last week we talked through how the context confirms what we're called to copy. Before we even get there, we have to know what the original intent was. I mean, the original intent of these was, was so important. On that, um, Biblical Archaeology, Archaeology Review just studied that and, and said a lot of Christians believe that the reason that... Um, the, the Levites were instructed to proclaim that, that one of the law was not to get tattoos was all about the fact that pagans had tattoos or pagans had tattoos that were in regard to mourning rites or, or mourning rituals or ceremonies. And so to separate yourselves from the pagans who are doing these terrible practices, we don't get tattoos. But Biblical Archaeology Review says that's actually less likely than another option, another possibility. And that possibility is the fact that in the ancient times, you, if you are a slave to a foreign king, okay, so you're a foreigner in a, in a foreign land, what you would do to be proclaimed as property of that king was you would have a tattoo across your hand saying the name of that king. And so whenever you're walking around, basically you're, I'm property, I'm property, I'm property. So what does God do to the people that are now emerging from slavery? He's saying, you are not going to be the person who's going to be enslaved to some foreign king. Not one more day. Don't let that happen. You are followers of me. I am your king. And we see in, in the book of Isaiah, even when, when, when Isaiah is talking about how people are going to be coming to God, even foreign people are going to this new king that across their hand will be inscribed the name, the Lord. 
And so we see this, this amazing picture of the fact that this wasn't just like some like, you know, don't get tattoos. It was very specific. And, and it was talking about the fact that we have one king. And that came right back to the Ten Commandments. Now, the, the cool thing is, is that when we get to the New Testament, we see that the 613 laws, which can be summarized into Ten Commandments, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest of these? He said, well, love the Lord your God and love others. And he's actually quoting Moses here. Um, but Matthew 22 says this, when, when asked this question, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, wait, how many laws are there? All 613, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now for me, because sometimes I'm the guy who's, when I'm, if I'm given a rule, I want to find the loophole. I'm like, this is awesome. Because we start with 613, but then that gets reduced down to 10. And what does Jesus do? And I'm like, this is so great. All I have to do is love God and love others. There's the problem. I am condemned by that. Two are enough to prove that I have failed the law. Remember when Jesus said that, that we see in scripture that if you, if you disobey one of the commandments, you've disobeyed all 10. If you've disobeyed the 10, which are summarized versions of this larger section, you've not just disobeyed 10, you've disobeyed 613. This law, which was graciously given to God's people as a construct for this time, as they're navigating through the wilderness to understand who God is and how to operate here in this place and time, all of a sudden became the evidence A through 613. Evidence pieces of, of my, my distance from God and how, how off I am. And the, and the problem with, with this is that I, as a person, I have disobeyed both two of those. I've disobeyed the fact that I, I'm called to love God. I've disobeyed that. And love each other. I've disobeyed that like this week, multiple times. And the problem with this, on top of everything else, is chapter 20. Chapter 20 is a bloodbath. Because chapter 20 is basically saying... Anyone who disobeys what we've just talked about, the, the circumstance and uh, the result is death. You commit adultery, death. You commit a murder, death. And you just go through and the blood will be on their heads. The blood will be on their own heads. The blood will be on their own heads. And that's very easy to read that and, and just gloss it over because, well, I'm, I'm a New Testament Christian. The law still stands in condemnation against me. And the result is still death. And we see this still in the New Testament. In Romans 1.18, when it says that the payment for sin is what? Death. And Jesus elaborates on this when he says that, you know, all you, you guys who were so intent about like trying to, to obey the 613, you're not committing adultery, you're not murdering. But, but you've heard it said, like, don't murder. But if you hate somebody, you have murdered them in your heart. What's the, what's the punishment for murder? Death. Jesus said, if, if, you, if you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And all the guys are like, we haven't done that. And he's like, well, have you lusted in your heart? Yeah, we have. What's the punishment for adultery? Murder. Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart after someone, you have committed adultery. The ramification of that is death, and that is bad news. And my law-breaking heart should have distanced me from God forever. Death and distance. I deserve the death penalty. 
When I'm reading Leviticus, I'm recognizing all the ways that I'm off. But here's the good news. Jesus decided to take that death penalty for me. He took the penalty and he gave me his purity. Uh, I've heard teachers describe it this way, and I've talked about it before, um, as like high school. I mean, how many of you, some of you were were really, really smart in high school. How many of you like graduated like with honors and you're up at the top of your class? It's okay, you could admit it here, it's all right. Some of you, very, okay, that makes sense, okay. Not a lot of smart people in this service. Okay, who, were, who was on the opposite end of that spectrum? You, you barely got out if you did. Okay, and it looks like there's a lot of people in between. Let's just say for those of you, let's say for all of us, it's worse than that, okay? Let's say that you didn't just barely graduate. You didn't. And the reason you didn't was because you didn't just have a D average, which you barely got through D for diploma, but you actually had an F average where everything was not just like 10 points or or five points, but zero. You didn't have one passing class, in part because you never showed up to class because you were always in the principal's office because on top of being a terrible student who couldn't do anything in class, you also were a really, really terrible person. You, I know what you did to that teacher's car. That was messed up. Like it was on fi- the flames. How could you do that? You did that. You should have been arrested if not expelled. But so you get all the way to the end, to end of high school and you're three weeks out from graduation and you know there's no hope you're ever going to graduate. There's not a chance. You've always had these dreams of Harvard. but there's no hope. Your parents are not throwing a graduation party because it would be a funeral. Everyone knows that would be the biggest joke in the world. And everyone's getting amped up. You're just trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life when someone comes up to you. And someone comes up to you who actually has had everything right. Not only just in their, their academic record, but their, 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 their standing in the school. This is someone who wasn't just good. I mean, like the world is looking at this student as a prodigy. How in the world were they so perfect? And the thing about them is it's easy to hate those type of people, but you actually like this person because he's a really nice guy. I wish I could hate him, but I can't. And he comes up to you three weeks out from graduation and tells you, listen, you're not graduating. Thanks, I knew that. Appreciate you rubbing it in. No, here, listen, I talked, I talked with the office and I'm going to, I've had it worked out that I'm giving you my transcript. Your what? My transcript. All of my grades are gonna be credited to you. So when colleges look at you, I know you wanna to go to Harvard. Harvard is going to see my grades and my classes. On top of that, they're also going to see all the things that I've done and I've gotten awards for. Those are now all credited to you. You are taking that from here. What's going to happen with my transcript? I took that for my own. You took my transcript? Yep. I'm having a meeting with the cops after this too because you've done some pretty messed up (laughs) stuff. But that's on me now. Now, as we're hearing that, there should be something bubbling up inside of you saying, that's not fair. And it's not. But that's Jesus. Jesus took our penalty and he gave us his purity so that our, our death was not carried by us but by him on the cross. And so that now 
we are no longer condemned to die, we can live. And the question is, what kind of life are we going to live? Which leads us to the moral reason. The moral law is there. It was given in grace, but it also stands in condemnation against us. We have a moral failure with regard to this law, but we also have a reason. The reason why you live in a moral way is not to be holier than thou. It's not to look religious. It's not to do a bunch of stuff that people can give you accolades for. It's actually a reflection of the fact that you were dead, but now that now you're alive. And Jesus was the one that did that for you. And so when we're looking at the, the moral reason, we go back and look at the Old Testament and say, okay, we got the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. What am I supposed to apply? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that that as a law over us has been canceled. It's been canceled by the cross of Christ. It's, we're already condemned. We've already broken it. And so what happens is now we look and say everything must be filtered through Jesus. Old Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg said, every Old Testament commandment must today be filtered through a grid of fulfillment in Christ to see how its application may have changed. And so that means that we go to the, we don't just ignore Leviticus. We don't just ignore the Old Testament. We actually go to it and say, this is what God has called these people to do. So the question is, how much of this is transferred in to our life in 2017? And when we look at the, the filter of that is Jesus himself. When we look and see what Jesus has taught, what he has affirmed or what he has left out, what his apostles have taught or what they've left out, we get a picture of what is now part of our life and our livelihood and what is left behind. We can see in the, in the Old Testament, there's things like in Deuteronomy, it talks about um, when you're building a new house, Make sure that you have a railing around your roof. How many of you are applying this verse today? Sinners. Why was that law there? For this time, for this particular time, the architecture was flat roofs. And neighborhood kids could get up on the top there. And they're messing around on this roof and they fall over and they die. And the blood would be on the head of the person who owned the house. So what does God say for this time frame? Put a railing around your roof. Do we hear the railing around the roof in the New Testament? No, we don't. And so we can understand that that's one of those, those 613 that was intended for this time frame. The, 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 the charge against uh, tattoos, do we see that reiterated in the New Testament? We don't. So we understand that that was a cultural stamp of this time frame. The cotton blend, you can feel at ease in the fact that you're wearing a 50-50 because that again is something that was intended for this time that didn't cross over into the new covenant. The old covenant is done, but the new covenant now ushers us into the reason why we live out a, 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 have, having sexual integrity. Why do we hold on to the sexual perspective that God has for, for, throughout scripture? Is because that is consistent. Uh, the concept of hate and forgiveness, we see again Jesus upping the ante, the treatment of the marginalized, spiritual integrity, honest dealings with others, this and more. We, as we're reading through the New Testament, we're recognizing that God is not just taking everything in the OT and kicking it, but saying, what look and see what is crossed over into everyday life. And to be honest, we don't have a problem with the Old Testament. We have a problem with the new. Most of us don't know enough about the Old Testament to have a problem with it, but the things that we read in the New Testament we have issues with. We read them and we say, I can't. I can't even do that. I mean, there's no way. I, the, God's perspective on sex, again, it's, I get it. It's, it's, that's God, but come on, who does that? Nobody does that around me. None of my friends, most of them believe in God. Well, I, the, the way, forgiveness. Forgiveness is good, but it's not necessary. 
Like, I, I've been burned hard enough by people that I, I, I have a right to hold on to some of this grudge. I can't. Which brings us back to you at Harvard. You're at Harvard now. And all of a sudden, you're sitting in your dorm room, and you've been given your syllabus, and you're looking at the classes and the requirements for the classes, and you have a panic attack. Because you realize, I should have never gone to Harvard. I don't deserve to be here. Everyone knows that I don't. I didn't get here on my own merit. Everyone gets that. I feel like a fraud. How in the world am I supposed to survive at Harvard? He set me up for failure. He set me up for failure because I got in here, but now I'm all by myself. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. And guess who it is? It's Jesus. Jesus walks in and says, I know, I know. How am I supposed to do this? I didn't do this on my own. I know. You did this. All of this. All this is something that you've accomplished, not, not me. And Jesus would simply respond. Let's go right back to that. Jesus would respond similar to what Paul said. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You're in Harvard. You can't boast about this. You didn't do this. I know, but now what do I do? How am I supposed to actually go from here? You need to know that I'm going to be with you every single day. You don't have a tutor that you meet with once a week. You have a God who is not going to leave you or forsake you. I saved you for this life. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we do this, we find that our life, the reason behind our, our decisions morally, there's not a show. It's because we believe and we trust that God is accurate even when we don't feel it, that he is true and that his way is the most satisfying way. It's the best way to bring him glory. We also buckle up for the fact that the world around us who has an unhealthy perspective, even an unhealthy perspective, we empathize with because it's part of us too. We know that they're going to take notice and they're going to ask. And when they ask, we have an opportunity to respond. And this is what I want to challenge every single Christian here with. Be ready to finish the sentence. The reason I have the view of sexuality that I do in my life, the reason that I have the perspective on sexual purity that I do in my life is not because it's natural. It's not natural to me. At least it doesn't feel that way. The reason that I have the perspective on sexuality for my life that I do is because Jesus paid for me. He died my death and now I've got new life. And he's equipped me to actually live this out, even though I feel like it's an uphill climb most days. Kids who are still in your house with your parents, the reason I obey my parents is not because it's natural. It's very unnatural feeling to me. And it will always be that way, progressively more so over time. But the reason that I honor my parents, as unnatural as it is, is because Jesus died for me and he made me new. And now I'm not living for myself, I'm living for him. And because I'm living for him, I actually get a chance to take steps that seem seemingly unnatural, but I get to see God's work in my life. The reason 
that I actually reach out and love people who are different than me, different demographically, different financial backgrounds than me, different races than me, different lifestyles than me, is not because all those things are natural. It feels very natural to be tribal, to hang around with people who act like you, live like you, look like you, vote like you. The reason I break out of that is not because it's natural, but because Jesus actually came from heaven to meet me right where I am. He died my death and he made me new. So the reason that I actually love people who are so different from me is because of him. Each one of these decisions are us fleshing out a reality that comes from the new covenant. Jesus has accomplished everything that required in the law and he's freed us to live out the law of love in his life. Are you doing that? If you're someone who's not someone who's ever surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never asked him to forgive all the sins that you have, you're still living in chapter 20. You're still fleshing out the death. And that's not only in this life, that's the life to come. Scripture says to repent, which means to turn around, to recognize that he, the God who's always been there, is ushering you into a new life. And that was accomplished through Jesus. Why don't you do that today? Make today the first breath that you take of new life, the life that he's always intended for you to live. Some of you are a Christian. You know you're a Christian. But there's some key aspects of your life that look totally similar to the unhealthy world around you. And you know it. You've got justified reasons for why that is. But deep down inside, the Holy Spirit is reminding you, this is not you. It's not the life that God has called you to lead. You too can repent, just like I can. And let God actually start to transform in you the person that he's created you for. One that was intended to have the life that was fulfilled, a fulfilled life, satisfying life, one that brings him glory. And one that when the distinctions are seen by others could finish that sentence. Let's pray right now. When we pray, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. And we're going to have Carlos sing a song afterwards. I want you to utilize this time to do business between you and God. Listen to the words. If they're smacking of truth between you and the Lord, let that be something that you have an opportunity to meet with him on. Let's pray. Lord God, I give you thanks for the fact that in spite of the fact that I see in the law nothing but judgment against me, I thank you for taking that judgment upon yourself. You paid for it. You died on the cross. You rose again. You did that for me. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you afford that to all who believe. Lord, if there's someone here who's just been questioning you or or distanced from you, never ever crossed that line from death to life, they've never put their trust in your work, your finished work on the cross, Lord, I pray that right now they surrender to you. Lord, give them the words to say to you in repentance that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the life I've lived. I'm sorry for making myself king and myself God and not you. I repent. I turn around. I put my trust in you. God, help me not only know that I'm saved, but that I'm walking in the life, that I'm following your lead. If today you are a Christian, but you recognize there are key parts that are just off. 
as you listen to the song and as you spend time in prayer, repent, come back to him, surrender, no matter what it costs, no matter what it means, trust him even more than you trust yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.